Welcome to Reconvene 2021, sponsored by Juniper Square, which provides a cloud-based investment management platform for real estate private equity firms, which probably half the people at this conference use. The conversation today is with Keith Wasserman, founder and partner at Gelt, a real estate private equity firm with a billion and a half in assets under management, focused primarily on multifamily and recently self-storage in the Western United States. All right, so um, I got a bunch of interesting questions to ask uh, Keith because, like, I'm interested in them. <laughs> um, but before I do that, I want to ask um, Keith to give us like just a quick like status update on what Gelt is today because it's just a complete monster. And then uh, what we're going to do is kind of go back and talk about some of the decisions that uh, took Keith and his partners from buying fourplexes in Bakersfield to uh, to what we have today. So maybe you could start out by telling us what what's going on with Gelt. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me, Moses, and um, excited to, to meet a lot of people IRL in real life. Uh, know a lot of you from Twitter, so feel free to say hi to me afterwards. But um, so Gelt today, 2021. Uh, I'll talk about the current portfolio. We, we own around 6,000 apartment units, Denver and West. Um, we own uh, 600,000 square feet of self-storage with another 150,000 square feet in contract right now. And we're also building a few hundred units locally uh, in the LA area. So uh, portfolio is around $1.8 billion value. And um, yeah, that's like the current, you know, what we're, what we're doing right now. Yeah, that's perfect. So, um, and just to like, to, to kind of give everyone a, a tiny bit more context, um, Keith got started in this business right around the same time I did and, and roughly in the same place. And, you know, we're at like 200 million in assets under management, right? So uh, the decisions that Keith made over the course of the, and his partners made over the last X number of years have been like objectively probably better than the decisions I've made. So I'm really interested to hear. Uh, no, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, no, it, it's, it's, it, we're, this conference is really intended to be about growing one of these firms. And, and this is an example of what happens if you get it all right. So I want to get started by talking about first, like that initial deal that, that you guys did uh, up there in, as a fourplex, I believe. Yeah, four units in uh, good old Bakersfield. We call it Bako Dice on a good day and Baker Tucky on a bad day. <laughs> and like, what were, so you were like, I think roughly like right out of college at that point? Yeah, I uh, graduated from USC locally in 2007 and took a year off, really learned as much as I could about real estate, got my broker's license to learn the lingo, read as many books as I could. I wish I was on Twitter actively during the day. There wasn't really a retweet community, thanks to Moses nowadays. But um, yeah, I uh, just try to absorb and learn as much as I could. But the real learning happened when we uh, bought that first foreplay. And what, like, were you guys scouring the MLS everywhere? Why, like, why, why that one? Yeah, so... My cousin Damien, actually, um, we were trying, we're serial entrepreneurs. We were trying to figure out what to do, and we had a lot of ideas, and they didn't work out. And, and then Damien came to me, and he's like, my father's in Bakersfield, and he's there all week, and then on the weekends, he comes back to Pasadena, where he lives. And the market there, you know, had a huge run-up during 04, 05, 06, during the housing boom, and then the subsequent bus got hit really hard. And, you know, these prices of these buildings are around a quarter of what they were, but there's REOs galore. The rents have fallen, but not that much. So... Uh, you should come out and see what, what my dad's doing and maybe we could do something similar. So literally Damien bought the first building and it was a four unit building, uh, 3911 Oregon Street. And um, yeah, man, it was uh, pretty awesome. You know, REO bank owned. He picked it up for around 150 to 175,000. It previously sold for like 550,000. And he didn't have much. So what he did is he got an FHA loan, which we talk a lot about on Twitter. is an awesome way to get started. Owner occupied and he didn't even have the money for that. So he borrowed 
like $5,000 from a friend for the down payment, and he got a cash advance of $10,000 on his credit card to do the rehab. And that's literally like the first fourplex that started with Gelt, and uh, that's how it started. Yeah. So one of the things I want to point out, which I think is interesting, um, and and uh, and kind of helped with your subsequent moves, is that your first property was not where you lived. Like that's a very like I think one of the, the mistakes that we made is, um, in retrospect, is wanting to keep control over the real estate and therefore only wanting to do deals in LA where we could like personally oversee it. And so it's interesting to me that right away from the very beginning, um, you were willing to go into a market that wasn't, you know, where so you a little lived. disclaimer owner occupied FHA, you got to live there. But Damien was a, a self-contractor was, was able to move for his work. And, um, you know, this was a long time ago. So you sort of skirted around, you know, we, we, we there's a gray area, right? So he put, he, 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 <laughs> everyone here is familiar with I that. I know this is being recorded and stuff, but he, he put all the utilities in his name. You couldn't, I don't think we could have bought an FHA deal locally um, with the values. I'm not sure exactly how the program works, but um, it incentivizes first time home buyers and, uh, that, look, we did what we needed to do to get started, and that's how we got started. You know? Now, were the, subsequently, was it uh, more acquisitions in Bakersfield? And then I want to talk, so, so I want to talk about that, and then I think your next move was to Phoenix. Is that right? Yeah, so Bakersfield, fourplex he bought. I came in on the second fourplex, put the down payment. Third fourplex, we had my dad put the down payment. And then we had these, like, three fourplexes, and we're like, so how do we grow? And we spoke to a lot of mentors, and they're like, why don't you sell 49% of those buildings and we marked it up because we've created so much value. They were dilapidated bank owned properties, boarded up and we breathed new life into them, renovated them, leased them out, performing assets. So we sold 49% of that and then uh, used that money to buy another three or four. And then we started buying a few more with some family friends. So the first year, all of 09, we bought, bought like 13 or 14 four unit buildings uh, on the east side of Bakersfield, sort of a rough part of that. And were you guys managing them yourselves? We uh, started with outside management, and on the smaller side, it's generally hard to find good, reliable property management companies. So then we took it in-house, and that we found out was a really big mistake. <laughs> My wife was somewhere in the audience. We were going up on the weekends renting units. We don't really speak Spanish. We had Google Translate working for us. <laughs> we had managers that weren't showing up. So it was, it was definitely, we weren't the best people to do it. And um, eventually we sold those assets. We learned a lot of good lessons. Uh, you know, I, I, I espouse on Twitter about just because something's cheap doesn't make it a good deal. You know, you, you, I learned to buy up in better areas and we, we, we quickly learned it, it takes the same amount of time and energy to buy a four-unit building as a 40-unit building as a 400-unit building. I still haven't learned that lesson, uh, or maybe I just did, or I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so, so the next step was Phoenix, right? Yeah, Phoenix. And, yeah. and l let me ask, like, was that, did you guys do like um, a comprehensive research study of different secondary markets LA, like what, why Phoenix? How yeah. was that? What was that process like? So Phoenix hit the radar because I'd been going to Phoenix my whole life. My grandparents lived there and we saw it was decimated. Rents were down around like 20% from peak to trough and there was foreclosures everywhere. A hundred thousand people left the state because they had this huge immigration bill and they were just bleeding from the housing bust. And it was more of a gut thing, you know, Phoenix fifth largest city in the United States. I, it's not going anywhere. Maybe temporarily had some major issues, but on a risk reward thing, it's like, Sure, it could have dropped a little lower, but it was like when things are depressed, that's the time to get greedy and charge in there. It was it was tough to raise money, though. People were scared and didn't have as much capital because maybe their stocks and real estate portfolios were down. So it was brutal raising money. I mean, it took us six months to raise money on a deal. We had to close with lines of credit, borrow money from you know friends, whatever we had to do. But but you guys were um, buying at ridiculously low per unit cost, looking right? Looking back, it was, yeah, like looking back, it was ridiculous. But back then, that was the market, right? So we bought 
our first deal in Phoenix, we, we went in there to meet the brokers, and uh, I was visiting my grandparents. It was 120 degrees out there. I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. They're like, who the, who the fuck is this young kid, right? <laughs> like, what is he doing? They, they advised me. The, the, the office was, cl like, empty because n people weren't doing deals. It was They were all depressed, the brokers. And we're like, you know, these smiley, because I'm a very energetic, you know, young guy. And, like, we're talking about how we're buying buildings in Bakersfield. And they're like, okay, young guy, start with a little 30, 40-unit building and then come back and talk to us. But... We came in there, and uh, my wife and I, Galena, we, we went and toured this 415-unit building that Aimco owned, Big Reit, and um, on prime, prime real estate on Camelback, right by the Biltmore Hotel. And the broker sort of dismissed us, young, young people. What the hell are they doing? They don't know anything. And um, that was the first deal we bought. It was 415 units, $16 million deal. We, we jumped from four or $5 million deals to that, and it took us like six months to raise that capital. So how did you, let's talk about that. So you, you and that that um, continued your tradition of kind of raising deal by deal. Like mm -hmm. you guys never did a fund or whatever. Always um, deal by deal. Deal yeah. by deal. So, um, so $16 million deal, what were you putting down? Like six or something? Yeah, we raised 5.9 million of that. Okay. Yeah. And uh, did you, like, I mean, I guess you're, maybe let's talk for a second. Your father had had some real estate experience yeah. in terms of syndicating. So full stuff, disclaimer, right? yeah, my dad um, had a very successful law practice. I don't think he really enjoyed doing what he was doing. He was always a very, like me, businessman, entrepreneur, um, grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And, uh, you know, like Jewish family, go, go be a doctor or a lawyer. So he did it. And, uh, but yeah, he made more money probably investing in real estate. And my mom pretty much built a few buildings for the family and local like strip center kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he said he's made more money on a few of these choice properties, like an industrial building, a strip center, an office building, local stuff, not nothing huge, but over the last 20, 30 years, they've appreciated so much and they've, they fund their lifestyle, the cash flow. So, uh, I was never interested in law, but real estate always intrigued me and yeah. So you were, so, but I mean, so, the, so sort of like the technology of raising money, like it, this was not something that was totally foreign oh, to man, your family. Oh man, we were, we were driving it. up to Bakersfield listening to Napoleon Hill think or grow rich and we're <laughs> like, how the fuck are we going to raise our first hundred thousand dollars? Like, right. you know, but we started with the low hanging fruit. We started with family friends. We started with clients. And then I brought my dad in as a partner. Um, once we bought all these fourplexes. Yeah. Because I couldn't qualify for larger loans. I didn't have the investor base. And we brought in another gentleman named Adrian Goldstein, who's been a, a mentor and friend, and he was a partner for many years. And he had the experience running larger multifamily properties for his father-in-law, but wanted to do more of his own stuff. And uh, there was five of us in the beginning. It was me, Damien, my dad, Adrian, and there was a, another younger partner. Uh, but in the beginning, yeah, we we um, we had only, uh, between the three young guys, a third ownership or something. We, we, over time, earned our ownership more and more, and now it's really family, me, Damien, and my dad, a third, a third, a third. I want to I wanna just highlight something there, which is, and this is a mistake that I think I've made as well. Um, uh, you, you were really not greedy in other, Correct. right? Like you, you maybe long-term greedy, long -term but not greedy, which but, is a, a yeah, but sad. not short-term greedy about no. trying. So I was so living you, at home in my parents, in my childhood room until I was 25. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we weren't making money for many years, but that's what I had to sacrifice. But that, uh, but that, but being willing to give up a big chunk of the promote, uh, to get the deals done, sort of put I'd you on that path. Rather be a small part of something that's going to be huge than you know some, something small that's going to take forever, and not really. Yeah, you know, no, that, I mean, look, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, um, so okay, so you're, we're in Phoenix now. Uh, by the first deal, um, you had had this bad experience of, of self managing in Bakersfield, mm -hmm. but now luckily you've got this, or, or maybe not luck, but in, by intention, you have this larger institutional property. Mm -hmm. uh, how'd you go about selecting management and getting comfortable that these people were going to do a good job? Yeah, we just. Like Adrian knew a few real estate people in Phoenix, and we had them introduce us to two or three management companies that were local, and we picked one that was uh, really just 
in that area. It wasn't a national one. They gave us a lot of attention, and they really helped us grow our business there. Uh, the, the, the name of the firm was Allison Shelton. Now it's called like uh, Shelton Cook or something like this. But um, yeah, they were very hands-on with us, and uh, we learned to really partner with our management companies. Later on, we sort of had them reduce fees, and we gave them pieces of the back end and really create, really? create yes, yeah, creative structures to really incentivize us. It's all about the management of these things, as Moses knows, he self-manages. So we wanted their best people, their best minds, and really incentivize them to crush it for us, you know? And so uh, that relationship led to buying a whole bunch more stuff in Phoenix, right? Yeah, Phoenix is our main market. That's all we bought from 2010 to like 15. We bought maybe 2,500 units in Phoenix. And they were all like older. Like a lot of people p miss this 415 unit because they were all studios and ones. They're like, oh, you got to buy twos and three. But it was on 10 acres of land, prime land, cheap, cheap. You know, looking back, it was probably better just to scrape it and build a brand new building. But we were way undercapitalized on the project. And, uh, but we thought we were smart when, when we went and sold it for $27 million, and then it resold for 55 and that's <laughs> worth $100 million, and I could, I, you know, I could retire probably. But, um, never going to retire, by the way. Yeah. So, um, okay, so you, you build up this portfolio in Phoenix through 2015. Um, and then you guys had already started selling at that point? Um, or when did you start selling? We started selling. Uh, the fourplexes went first because they were pain in the ass. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, didn't really make money, uh, maybe a little bit. On one of them, we lost money. We come out of our own pocket and return the money to an investor. I always talk about that because uh, we've never lost principal for investors. And that's sort of you know my ethos. And then um, I think we started selling Phoenix maybe in like 17 or so. Got it. But in yeah. the meantime, you started buying other places. Yeah, we started buying in Denver, call it. That was our next market maybe in like years just blend, maybe five, six years ago. And then Salt Lake City, Reno, uh, expanded to Portland, Seattle, Albuquerque, and Southern California. Now... Talk to me about that expansion. Did you guys bring on board like an acquisitions team? Yeah. So like the company was just like the five of us in the beginning, all partners kind of thing. But we brought on people where we had holes. So we brought on, you know, people to, that we taught the asset management then taught the acquisitions and where and we focused more on where we would move the needle. Like Damien oversaw all the major construction projects for many years. And I oversaw like the strategic, strategic vision and investor relations and, and broker relationships. And yeah, we just kept adding one person at a time where we needed it. And now it's like relatively small firm because we don't do property management. We're 23 people, but um, we would be hundreds if we did a property management. And that was by design. I didn't want to be in the property management business. Otherwise I'd have hundreds of employees. It's a low margin business. It's good for like, if you're all in one area, like Moses is controlling your costs and really having a pulse on the market. But for us, it's just not practical. We're in so many states and markets. That makes sense to me. Now, um, again, I want to draw out the, uh, this notion of not being greedy because this is something that like I've struggled with in building our uh, GP business. It's when you own it, you, you have fee income or whatever coming in. Uh, and you need to make a decision like every month, do I put that fee in my pocket or do I hire someone to help me grow the business? And that's like a challenge that all small businesses have, right? Like you're going to fund growth from your, yeah. from your own cash you flow. Delay that gratification, man. It's tough to do, but we did it from our first deal. We, we didn't even take the uh, acquisition fee. We rolled it back into the deal. Thank God, because it went up two, three times <laughs> and then we exchanged it. I'm wearing my 1031 exchange shirt. Thanks to Joey Baum, our Twitter friend. I don't know if you're here, but, um, you know, yeah, be man. careful that we're like, uh, uh, people are not excited about the 1031 exchange. Right now. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, okay, so so you guys made the decision to staff up, uh, taking money out of your own pocket. Um, was that like a contentious decision internally, or was everyone aligned about that? I think everyone was aligned. I mean, we sort of did it gradually over time. It wasn't like you know we overhired and we just did it gradually over time, one one person at a time, where we needed where we had holes and needed people. Yeah. 
That makes sense to me. So um, these people that you're bringing, you taught, you told me that um, you train them up. Were these people coming in as like rank amateurs, like they didn't know anything, or were you bringing in acquisitions people who had done it for other companies? So, yeah, our first few hires, literally one guy just started coming and didn't even like, I didn't, I didn't even hire him, but George has been with us now like eight years and he's now a partner and the fucking guy just hustles and he's been a great asset. And I always say you, you get paid by the value you bring, you know, make yourself irreplaceable if you want to really, you know, earn what you think you're, you want to earn and stuff. But um, yeah, we had like another guy, one of my partners now, we made him a partner, but he started from the ground up. He like maybe did some commercial brokerage for a little while but very little experience and he went to work at Barnes and Noble, but the guy was hungry as hell. So the early people were just like hungry and wanting to learn. And, but later on we, we started like hiring. It, it just took a lot of time to train and we were a little further along. So, um, but yeah, even one of our last hires five, six years ago now, Josh was a former professional baseball player and he never sat in an office, right? So um, didn't like have any real estate experience other than investing with other groups, which he, because he's really smart. He knows real estate. That's the way I park my money and stuff. So yeah, we had a lot of people that didn't have the experience, but nowadays we're at hiring people with more experience, I'd say. Got it. Uh, we've gone through a similar path and, and I think a lot of people out here probably have, uh, have lived that as well. Um, okay. So, uh, I want to now kind of talk about, uh, your, your switch. I mean, obviously you had the experience of starting to sell in 2017, like everyone who sold anything, uh, before today, you kind of regret that a little bit, right? That's, that's why, that's why I take antidepressants. Uh, all, all the buildings we sold back in 17 that have doubled and tripled in value. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, so is that like, the, the, was that really the genesis of the hold forever type thing that you guys are thinking about now? Or was, was it like, help walk me through a, that, a that few, mindset. A few things. So we sold in the beginning days to return capital to investors to create the track record. Also, we didn't know that we could sort of take off our promote and let the investors keep rolling. We, we, we later learned that through another sponsor and that's, that's really helped us a lot. Let's talk about that for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah. So walk me through the mechanics there. What, what, what yeah. specifically so, do you mean by so, that? So um, even today, Sometimes we'll take promote off the table. Sometimes we'll roll as much as we can into the next deal, like with the investors. And uh, yeah, essentially, because the whole LLC has to do the uh, you know 1031 and upleg. So once the money goes to the accommodator, once we we close on the upleg, any dissenting investors that don't want to participate, usually there's like one to ten percent call it. Then we'll just swap them out of the LLC with a new investor that wants to participate in the new acquisition. And that's um, been invaluable for our investors who now could compound without greedy Uncle Sam taking his long-term capital gain and recapture. And if, if you look over a long period of time, you're going to make way more multiples on your money d doing that if you ever sell rather than selling, paying all those taxes, have after-tax dollars and, and reinvesting. And I think, I mean, I think your ability to do that is sort of, uh, to a certain extent, the result of having, first of all, cashed out on some of those earlier deals, right? And also you guys get some fees. So yeah. you don't need to crystallize. It took us years to be able to like, get to that point where we could start not needing those fees. Because every year our op, it costs more and more to run our business because we're, we're, we are lean, but it's still you know millions of dollars to run a business. So, so I always advise people, there's so many different routes. Like you could r go raise a fund, you could do deal by deal, but yeah, keeping it leaner and meaner, it re alleviates, alleviates this, like from you know, needing, <laughs> needing to, you know, do tons of deals sure. and stuff. Yeah. So, okay. So you, uh, you were kind of ahead of the curve, I would say in terms of, uh, being in these, um, in these secondary markets. I mean, obviously the rents and values have run up enormously since then. So good move. Uh, you have recently, um, you, you did an expansion into mobile homes, uh, which I think maybe, maybe talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I've always had a dream. I mean, some people dream of being an actor. I've had a dream of owning mobile home parks. So, um, you know, I'm those, sorry. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I mean, I, I drive by. I'm hunting for them. They're sort of hidden. I see the white roofs when I'm driving on my, the map, and I'm like, oh my god, these things are like gold mines, man. So we we uh, Josh had a, a former teammate. His brother was a top regional manager for Sun Communities. We poached him. We said, let's go buy mobile home parks, and we started with one, and then two, then three. We bought nine of them. Quickly realized it's just brutal to manage those. There's no good third-party management companies. They were really disparate. We had three in rural Pennsylvania, two in, you know, like Foley, Alabama, great market. We crushed it there, but like very dispersed and not in major MSAs. So we had to take management in-house. Then we realized we're not good managers and, you know, didn't have the experience in the space. Then we sent it back to a apartment management company, which wasn't great. So we ended up exiting that. We, we crushed it on some of them. Some of them were some of our worst performing. Like we, we lucked out. We had cap rate compression and some other people took them off our hands, thank God. And you know, our lowest return was our three pack portfolio in Pennsylvania. We hit like an eight or nine IRR. And I'm always like, dude, if that's our last, our worst deal, I'm going to be ecstatic. Yeah, that's all right. I never want to lose principle for people. And knock on wood, we, we've been doing that. But um, yeah, we were in the mobile home park space for a quick minute. Um, my wife, uh, Glenna, who's somewhere in the audience, she uh, spearheaded the, the buying of an RV park in, in Marina, which is next to Monterey, and we did very well there, but it was more of a development play. We bought a 65-site RV park. She was The previous owner owned it 10 years, wasn't able to expand it. She's fucking bulldog. She got through the city. <laughs> she doesn't take no for an answer. We expanded the park, got 23 or 24 extra pads, uh, and we sold it to Equity Lifestyle, Sam Zell's publicly traded REIT. And it was a big home run. And then we rolled it via 1031 into an apartment deal. Nice. Okay. So that, that was a, an experiment, which it doesn't, it obviously wasn't a failure. I mean, you guys made money, but, yeah. but, but one, but like a, a kind of a blind alley that you went down. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll be an LP in mobile home park. Fund with, <laughs> but, but you got to be really, you know, roll up your sleeves, be hands on with, with the parks and, and right. be in managing them and be in it, you know, more. Yeah. So, um, what was, talk about the genesis of your interest in self-storage. Cause that's another, yeah. Another of, one of our investors is like one of the like managing partners of a big self-storage kind of management company and ownership group. And I'm like, this business is golden. He just kept telling me over the years and over the years. And I'm like, let's, you know, figure out how to get into the space. So uh, we partnered with him on the first one and it sort of fell on our lap. We had a, a broker friend of ours that was marketing a deal as a, as a development site, but uh, the, they, and they wanted top dollar, but they weren't willing to like allow a developer to tie it up for a long period of time. And there was like a transition in the specific plan. So there was a lot of uncertainties on what could be built there. So we're like, okay, let's just underwrite it as a self-storage kind of project. And if it pencils, great. And it wasn't really marketed to the self-storage crowd. It was marketed to apartment people. So I think we were able to really get in there and steal it. I mean, rents were like 40% below market. It was local here in South Pasadena. Um, there was a moratorium on new expansion there. It's uh, very undersupplied. I think only like three or four square feet per person in the re region. My self-storage guys, like the national average is like eight. And uh, it makes, it'll make a great redevelopment site long-term, but I, I don't even think we're gonna do it. We're just crushing it as a self-storage. We don't have to worry about, I mean, we were able to raise rents to market rapidly, and, but it's not that many dollars. That's why we weren't changing people's lives. Like we had only 8% drop off and or even less, maybe 5% leave. And you know, it's, um, it's a great business. Yeah. So yeah, let me ask, so, so uh, you know that I've uh, uh, been incredibly risk averse about expanding both geographically and out of asset classes, and that's because I'm a nervous Nelly. Like, how talk to us about that process um, for you and your partners to get comfortable. I mean, for you, 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 you had the audacity to go into these markets that honestly a lot of people before a lot of other people were doing it, uh, and that worked out. 
Uh, and then you've, you've gone into these other asset classes. Like, how did you, how did you get over that uncertainty? Like what, um, was there a process or was it, was it the process is bringing in someone that knows what the hell they're doing. I mean, we had a top regional manager for sun, you know, doing mobile home parks on self storage. We had a, a guy that had a lot of experience and, and then we brought in another guy that had, you know, experience and, and just let them really run with it and sort of take ownership of, of it and give them big pieces of the upside and like, just really be hands-on. And we would help with our brand like raising capital and you know with with uh, just the back office the accounting just like all the things we provide and um yeah i mean it, it's it's we, we're trying to be entrepreneurial and zig when others zag and find opportunities but you know we're still 90 percent apartments and self-storage is, is a sort of a standalone we're le letting that keep growing and stuff at its own pace but um definitely always talking with the firm what do, where do we want to be and focus our time and energies on there's no right or wrong i mean i love what you do man like you like what i do i love what you do i think the grass <laughs> is always greener kind of thing i mean I, i'd love to build a huge portfolio locally in la and i think i'd love to be here because of supply constraints and areas that are you know changing and rents going up and i think la long term has a lot of legs so i think there's no right or wrong it just oh no i'm yeah, yeah. i appreciate you saying that um no i mean i guess where i'm coming from and i and i appreciate uh uh, uh you explaining that is it's another example of you kind of like not being greedy, like not 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 kind of like demanding you and your partners to keep all the upside, but instead mm -hmm. being willing to share it uh, in exchange mm -hmm. for people's expertise. Yeah. And that's something we've struggled with. If you go back and you read um, King of Capital, let's say, which is the uh, the Blackstone book or the first Blackstone book, uh, one of the things, one of the recurring tropes there is that Schwartzman does the same thing, like yeah. brings in people to try. And they, you know, you don't hear about the, the failures. Mm -hmm. Like they went down some blind alleys also, which I think is part of like the, the, the yeah. entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I'm rereading that book. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, for anyone who hasn't read that book, that's a, that's a, that's a, like I, I would say, like among the most important ones for building a private equity business. Um, okay, so let's talk about today. Um, you've obviously, you've got this very large portfolio. Uh, it seems like your investors are sort of like bought into owning the stuff long-term. Mm -hmm. You have recently done some very large deals. So you're still capable of raising very large amounts of capital. But of course, like we're all dealing with like the pricing in the market and every, basically for every asset class is just extremely painful. So, uh, how are you thinking about things today? Yeah, it's a good question. So if you look at our sales versus buys. I think a year or two ago, we, we did more sales than buys, but a lot of our buys are facilitated because we're selling, you know, properties that have gone up in value like crazy. And we're in the process of sort of that GELT 1.0 was a lot of buildings that were 60s, 70s, 80s built, older buildings that were harder to hold long-term, had a lot of major capital needs over the years that ate away at our CapEx account quicker than we thought. So now we're selling those and rolling into, into newer buildings, 2000 and newer, hopefully 2010 and newer. And the cap rates have really Converge. They're like yeah. very similar, like the older versus the newer. And I'd rather, you know, upgrade the portfolio to a newer vintage, something that I could hold longer term. And um, yeah, we're even looking at new deals pretty much now to roll into. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, I think we're going through. I think through, you've been doing yeah, similar, We've been doing yeah. the same thing. It's like if the market's not going to differentiate between a brand new building and a, you know, lipstick one from the 70s yeah. and, 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 or between LA, let's say, or whatever, one of yeah. the other really good markets and some some tertiary markets that maybe aren't as good. Like, okay, take the better ones. If the cap yeah, rates are I'm going right. back to SoCal because the cap rates are similar, maybe even higher here than like Phoenix and Vegas, other markets that are historically very boom and bust. So they, they are growing faster now in terms of rent growth, but I think, um, you know, supply could come online really quick. I think it's a lower cost of living kind of area. I think, you know, I think the there's not as much barriers to entry here. You're more insulated and I'm, trying to zig with another zag kind of thing again i'm going newer i'm going core i bought in long beach bought in anaheim we're looking at another big deal in long beach so like yeah we're just trying to buy more socal and how do you um how have you had those conversations with your lps i mean obviously uh 
many of them did extremely well with you. So that's, you know, they, obviously they're going to trust you. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure when you're showing them the pro formas, like they're, they're objectively not as exciting as the stuff. Yeah, you're they're, they're definitely them. lower. We've always sort of under promise over delivered. I think when we were showing deals over the years, the IRRs started 15. Now they're down to like 10 to 12 range. But it's sort of I don't love IRs because we usually show a 10 year projected hold period, not because we're maybe going to hold that long, but like because I want to show our investors this is patient capital money you don't need in the next few years like and I don't show any like supplemental loans or refinances. Those are just kind of gravy stuff, which we've done a ton of times. But um, yeah, I think uh, a lot of deals we've sold earlier than exchange, but then some deals I've recently bought that will probably, God willing, hold longer than the 10 years. But, uh, you know, I always say we're trying to be tax advantaged and like t we'll hopefully pull out all the principal over time. It takes time, but, and then you'll have no money in the deal and it'll, you'll own the golden goose laying the golden eggs. Why, why ever sell that? Why sell that? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, obviously we're, we're on the same page there. Um, so it's, so, so, and I, and I, I guess, um, yes, the IRRs have come down. But on the other hand, obviously everyone's swimming in cash right now, right? So, so there's still that push from LP is like, look, I got more money coming in and looking across asset classes. And even though the deals you're showing me now aren't as good as the ones that maybe you were showing me yeah. seven years ago, they're still better than the other stuff that I'm seeing out there. Yeah, it's all relative. I mean, there's, there's times to you know invest heavier and hoard cash. Now is a good time just to be cautious and cautiously optimistic. Find the, you know a good deal and, and just, uh, it depends like, how much leverage and that's what I was going to ask and what you. your investment like uh, most of our investors are trying to preserve wealth and grow it safely over time you know they're 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 already they've already made their capital and we're just trying to really safely grow it and we're not I always say if if you want to swing for the fences we're not the right group because I, I I'm not max leveraging deals like you know I'm taking lower leverage than I could get and and I'd rather be safe than sorry we're raising a lot of extra capital up front so I'd never have to go back and do a capital call during COVID when collections drop we we were in the negative on a couple buildings we've never been in the negative like in terms of where the uh, rent didn't cover the expenses we didn't have to do any capital calls because the account was plush with cash though so, yeah. yeah I mean I you know obviously we share similar philosophies in, in that respect what are you doing in terms of leverage right now is it like on these buys the stuff you're buying now is it like 65 percent or yeah, something in like that, that range um so we've historically been long-term 10-year fixed rate debt which has crushed us on anything we've sold because rates have gone down 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 and new buyers want to put new debt on so we've eaten a lot of prepayment penalties um we're in the process of eating a 10 million dollar prepayment penalty <laughs> yeah it hurts but like dude i mean we're gonna the investors cash on cash is going to shoot through the roof because like the, on this one loan that they're, they're paying down principal, we're going to have a new d loan that'll be 10 years full term IO and we're upgrading from a seventies building. We'll be buying God willing a new building. It's, it's in a better area. So I, th I think worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. Um, are you in terms of the executions on the loans that you're doing? Um, and we're getting into the weeds here, but like, uh, you know, obviously I'm fascinated by the multifamily stuff in particular, um, uh, agency debt or are you, I'd say 80, 90% agency. The last two deals, which are giving my partners a little heartburn, we're taking a little more risk. We're doing bridge because the agencies were only going to like 50 or 55%. And the uh, bridge was offering up to 75. I think we took like 68 to 70 kind of range. Um, and But the rates start way lower, but they're floaters. And they come due in three years, but there's two one-year options to extend. They're like five-year loans. So we're taking on a little more risk, but I'm, I feel globally our portfolio, we're so low leveraged. And I feel like safer taking that. I'm not. I don't want to do too many of those, but um, we we have done a few. But usually, people that are maxing leverage and their their incentive is just to go sell the building. But you never want to do that because, like, what if the time to sell the building is not a good time? You want to be able to hold longer term and wait through the cycle. You never want to be a forced seller, you know. 
Yeah, uh, uh, I hear you. I preach my language. Um, so uh, I guess I want to talk a bit more about the LP base for these things. Yeah. So um, you obviously have had a group of people that have been following you all along, um, and but you also you also will take checks that are how yes. what, yeah what what size checks are we talking about? So in about? the state the stated like minimum in an offering memorandum says a hundred thousand. It's to weed out you know it has to be accredited investors only. We're not dealing with the unaccredited. Um, I always say to first timers, if they want to start with 50 or 75 to get, test the waters, start a relationship, fine. If you're younger and you're still accredited and, and I like you and you're not going to cause any problems, I'll let you in for 25,000 even. But yeah, our average check size is probably 150 to 175, but it's skewed because we have some bigger ones, you know, 500,000, 750 million, you know, once in a while, three to 5 million, like, so yeah, but we have and, a ton of investors in these deals. Yeah. yeah. So you, I mean, you guys are managing an enormous investor base, like, yeah, how like many, a thousand what are, and, and a thousand uh, people Juniper square sponsoring this thing. They, yeah. They, uh, IMS is dicking us around, man. June is per square. I'm going to be talking <laughs> to you guys after this. <laughs> Actually in the same boat. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, so, uh, on one, one hand, I want to say, I guess, that, like, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Like, a thousand people, on the one hand, we'll talk about in a second, as a large group of investors. But on the other hand, that's actually... To, to build a billion eight portfolio with a thousand relationships is one of the yeah. craziest things. I mean, we raised like 650 million. So I guess if you do the math, what is that? Like, I mean, five, 600,000 per average investor or whatever. And, and people uh, are coming in like not, it's obviously not all at once on one deal. They're oh yeah. I always over. recommend put a little in every deal. And over time their checks get bigger and bigger as they start making more money through their, you know, I always say we're like an outsourced real estate arm for, for our investors, right? Like you could go out and buy a five, 10 unit building in LA, but that's going to cost you, you know, you, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand a unit. You know, you need to plunk down a lot of cash. Instead, just put a little bit in a lot of our deals. And yeah, you're giving up, you know, a little, some fees and some promotes and stuff, but you don't have to do shit. Like, yeah. literally, like, it's seamless. Passive, yeah. Passive. And focus, you're going to make the most money focusing on your career or your business. That's where you should spend your time and energy, you know? So, how do you internally, I mean, obviously, I think in the beginning, you were probably managing those investor relations, but a thousand people, there's a lot of K1s, a lot of distributions. How yeah. do you, how did you build up a team specifically to do that? Yeah, we have a whole squad managing these investors. I mean, at the, at the same time, I'm always the one that first onboards them and talks to them and really develops a relationship with them. You know, I, I, I get all, they all have my cell phone, my email, like I, I'm available 24 hours, you know, investors, we give them the white glove treatment. I mean, if, without investors, I wouldn't have a business, right? So uh, we used to, literally in the beginning years, this is a good story, we used to charter planes and fly them out to the properties. We spent <laughs> money we didn't have. Like, we were pre-spending our ACFI to show them that this is the building. This is what we're going to do with it. These were the bigger investors, obviously. But, like, you know, in real estate, you could see, t touch, feel. And we were very hands-on with, with all the investors and still to this day are. I mean, and we've grown through word of mouth. We started with one investor and then two. our first investor was a guy that used to work for my dad like 20 years ago and he moved out of the country and he's like, I'm seeing what's going on in the US. Let me invest hundred grand or 200 grand into the US stuff. And then family friends started investing. Then they started telling friends. But over the last few years, I've been focusing on like broadening my network and that's why I'm active on Twitter and LinkedIn and podcasts and like just just to get the awareness out that there are gr good sponsors like Moses like myself like other people in the audience that you could invest with that you know will be good fiduciary for you and grow your family's wealth over a long period of time you know that's what my goal is and theirs love it and I guess I want to emphasize yet again and this I mean I'm now I'm sort of seeing a trend here it's a, you you've been willing over uh over the whole course of the business to really focus on uh not being greedy spending money that could have gone into your pocket instead again hiring a big investment uh, investor relations team basically to make that a white glove uh, yeah. experience yeah we them. have I mean we have the 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 software helping but like I mean we have calls every day from people and you know I, tr I try to help as much as I can but then we have like at least four or five people that are touching that, you know, 
in that different need parts to of the assign process. my interest. Yeah, the accounting to, department yeah. helps them. We have investor relations department, the paralegal, like everyone's touching them for different reasons. But yeah, I get furious when if 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 something falls through the cracks, especially in, in this regard. Yeah, I mean our businesses don't exist right without the trust of uh, yeah. trust of a bunch of people. Want to thank you very much for that. Uh, I know we got a little bit more in the weeds than um, than maybe some interviews, but like no, I, I mean, great. we're the, the audience here is is people who who are in this business and want to do this business, and uh, hoping hoping it was helpful. Yeah, no, thanks, Moses. And feel free to contact me on my my email, Keith at Geltink.com. You know where I am on Twitter. DMs open. I'm happy to answer any questions. Specific questions are always good instead of general like what to do. But like, yeah, I'm happy to help. So thanks for having me, man. This is great. Fantastic. Thanks, Keith. Yeah.